Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 43. And you can find this on page 1040 of the Church Bibles. Page 1040. Luke chapter 9, beginning partway through, verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thank you, Bob, for your prayers and Carolyn for your reading. And uh, welcome uh, as well from me. I'll add my welcome to Matt. It's great to see you this morning. And um, if you are new, do come and say hello afterwards. I'd love to get to know you. Well, our passage this morning poses us a pretty simple question, really, doesn't it? Are you ready to follow Christ, whatever the cost? Really, Jesus is just uh, continuing to teach what he began to teach in 9 verse 23. Do you remember that? Back over the page on, on 1039. He said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
Are you ready to follow Christ, to daily put your own desires to death and follow him whatever the cost? Are you ready to walk in the way of the cross? Now, I was going to open today with the story of C.T. Studd to inspire you. There he is on the screen. Uh, Maybe you've heard his rhyme. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He was actually a southerner, I think, so he probably said past and last. Uh, But you uh, no doubt have heard it, some of you, if you've been Christian for a few decades. C.T. Studd was in many ways a model disciple. He played cricket for England. There he is, bat in hand. And he was educated at um, some school called Eton and then a university called Cambridge. He was the heir to a big fortune. And he caused a massive stir in 19th century England by giving all of those privileges up to walk in the way of the cross to sail to China to serve his Lord. And I was going to open with all C.T.'s studs, successes as a disciple, but the thing is about this passage is it's a little bit awkward because we actually see here failures. Three failures to walk the way of the cross. Luke doesn't seek to inspire us this morning with great feats of following, but to teach us through all too familiar flops. They say there's nothing like making mistakes for really learning, don't they? But also, as we watch the disciples in this passage getting things so terribly wrong, I hope we can all be, well, freed from having to pretend to ourselves and one another that we're somehow the perfect disciples. You're not. I'm not. And even C.T. Studd was most definitely not. For all his heroics, apparently he was riddled with vanity and insecurity. One biographer wrote this. He made dictatorial demands on missionaries who came to serve under him. He even dismissed family members, his own children, from his mission, his mission, because he considered them less than totally committed, even though they had sacrificially cared for him in his illness. And fellow workers were shocked by Studd's arrogant attitude towards Christians who weren't British. Shocking. Shocking failures. You see, the point is, there simply is no Christian, dead or alive, who doesn't fail. So the real question is, how can we grow? How can we turn our failures more and more into faithful following? And Jesus shows us in verse 44. Did you see verse 44? Listen carefully. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. I love William Tyndale's more literal translation on this. Let this saying sink into your ears. Are you listening? Hear me. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Do you see, in the face of our failures, Jesus doesn't say, work longer hours, do more stuff, try harder. No. 
He says, listen, really listen. Hear what I am telling you about my cross. So do you? Do you listen and grapple with this saying? Do you try to grasp what it means that the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men? And that for you. The Son of Man, that towering figure from Daniel's dream, Daniel chapter 7, that Pete explained to us a few weeks ago. The one who had divine authority over all the nations and yet appeared as a man. A mysterious figure in Daniel, but we understand who he is. God become man. The maker of mankind come as a man. The God-man handed over to the man that he had made so that he, the living God, the giver of life, might be put to death. And he did it willingly to take the punishment for our failures. He did it for us and for our salvation. You see, if only you can grasp this saying, then everything would be different. Can you grasp the cross? If you could, you would see the sheer goodness of God. If you could, you would see your own failures exposed in the light of his love. If you could, you would know your failures are forgiven freely and fully, and you would find comfort. And experiencing his love in all of that, wouldn't you perhaps just grow to love him in return? Perhaps loving him then, you might find that you were prepared to follow him, whatever the cost. Has Jesus' teaching sunk in for you? Has it sunk into your ears and your heart? Or is it still hidden? If you can, please take time over Easter, not to do more for Christ, but to mull over more this saying again, to let it sink in, to pray that God would open your ears and reveal it to you afresh, or even perhaps for the first time. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about this morning, then please come and talk to me. I'd love for you to understand this saying for the first time because grasping that the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men for you changes everything. It changes you if you grasp it. But the disciples didn't grasp it and they were scared to bring it up. After all, it didn't seem a very comforting thought that their Lord might be arrested and even killed and failing to grasp his cross, they failed then to follow the way of the cross themselves in the rest of the passage. Three ways to fail this morning. Here's the first one. If you wanna fail, serve for status, not from love. Now I am of course being ironic, just to be clear. Uh, we want you to serve from love, not for status, but um, there you go. Verse 46, look at it with me. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You know, in one sense, perhaps this argument actually flows from getting something right, doesn't it? These guys have worked out that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that last week, didn't we, or a few weeks ago. They've worked out he's the Messiah, the greatest figure in human history. 
the greatest king whose power and glory are beyond compare. And we've seen snapshots of that power over evil and nature and even death. And look, this glorious and great Messiah has chosen them to be his chief ministers, to be his cabinet. Hamza Yusuf has been choosing his cabinet for the SNP this week. Why do you think he chose the people he chose? Well, clearly because they were great too, skillful enough and gifted enough to serve. And so how great must these disciples be to be chosen to be the cabinet of the greatest king that's ever been? It's perfectly natural, isn't it, to ask, well, if we're all great, which of us is perhaps the greatest? To be called by this great king to this great work of establishing his great kingdom. But then Jesus immediately reframes his kingship and his kingdom work, doesn't he? Verse 47. Verse 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus, who really is the great Messiah, identifies with children. His kingdom, which really is the greatest kingdom that will ever exist, is a kingdom full of little kids. To receive a child, this child in my name, says the king, is to receive me. So, my chief ministers, my cabinet, here's your ministerial brief, babysitting. It's a bit of a come down, isn't it? Kate Forbes uh, just passed up a, a, a job as a minister in Yusuf's SMP cabinet. And if seven degrees of separation is right, I reckon between us we can get a message to her that I have a vacancy for a babysitter. Do you think she'd be interested? Or would it be beneath her? Well, quite rightly, it would be beneath her. But do you see, children were a picture of low-status individuals in Jesus' world. And to receive them and care for them is low-status work for low-status people. If you want to make a note to see this more explicitly later in the gospel, uh, chapter 22, 25 to 26, Jesus explicitly defines his illustration of children here as, as being a picture of people who are low-status, like slaves rather than rulers. 22, 25 to 26. I'm not going to look at it now, but you can scribble it down. I wonder then, are there people at church who you feel that you're above? Above serving, maybe? That would be a worrying sign, wouldn't it, that you're not walking the way of the cross, that you're too interested in status and still lacking love. Maybe for some of you, it is actually children. You'd never get involved in the crash or the kids' groups, especially perhaps not if you're a man. Because babysitting's not a job for important people, is it? Especially not important men like the apostles. Isn't it? The king of kings says the smallest child in crash 
says of him that, or her that whoever receives that small child in his name receives him. So I ask, is receiving the king of kings not important enough of a job for you? And to receive the Son of God is to receive the Father, says Jesus. Well, I ask, is welcoming your maker beneath you? Now, of course, this isn't just about literal children, is it? It's about anybody who has nothing to offer you or your status in this community. The kind of person who, perhaps when you have a conversation with them, it feels like babysitting rather than an enriching experience. I wonder, do you avoid those people? Have we forgotten that the Son of Man chose us to serve Him? Not because He needs us. Not because He gets anything from us. No glory. Oh, He is perfectly glorious with or without us. No, the Son of Man went to the cross for us, for me, His needy child, Simply out of love. And he asks me then to serve him by serving all my fellow children, no matter how little and insignificant they might seem to me, because the cross shows us that none of us is insignificant in his kingdom. He loves us all. He died for us all. But how slow we are to love each other for his sake. And how quickly we are drawn to those who seem to have status. And by whose status, by association with whose status, we might enhance our own. How are you doing at walking in the way of the cross? Perhaps you find it hard to answer that question. Well, Luke and Jesus give us a good diagnostic. How do we respond to others' successes for Christ? Verse 49, verse 49, Master, said John, this is John the gospel writer, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do you remember last week how the disciples failed to cast out a demon? And now they see somebody who succeeds where they failed. And what do they do? They feel threatened. And their tribal instinct kicks in and they try to stop him. I wonder when you see other Christians or even whole churches succeeding perhaps where you or we have failed, how does your heart respond? Do you feel threatened by other successes? Do you get tribal? Surely true love for Christ And love for your fellow children, cross-shaped love, that seeks to give, not get, that seeks to serve and not be served. Surely that kind of love celebrates other people's successes, even if they're in areas where we and you have failed. And of course, the greatest failure of all is to fail in that kind of love. Love is the great act in the kingdom of the Messiah. Doesn't his cross teach us that? Well, let's move on to the second way to fail. Second way to fail. Um, Can I just say, by the way, um, a bit impromptu, um, I'm I'm not having a go at you. 
this is me. Every time Matt Laws preaches a good sermon, my heart sinks. We're all like this. We're all like it. Second way to fail. Respond to rejection with retaliation. In verse 51, uh, Jesus here, preparing to return to heaven, sets out resolutely, says Luke, to Jerusalem in verse 51. And he is going to need a hero's resolve, isn't he? Because before his entry into heaven comes the cross. Now the cross will open up entry into heaven for anybody who follows after him. The cross, we heard last week, brings about a new exodus, a way out of this world's slavery to sin and death and into the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus' resolve for us deserves a hero's send-off, doesn't it? It's incredible what he did for us. The streets are not lined with well-wishers. The red carpet is not rolled out for him. In fact, the very first village he tries to enter locks and bars its gates to him. He sends messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. And verse 53, verse 53, the people did not welcome him. It's no secret, is it, that there was a long-standing enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews with racial and religious prejudice running in both directions. And yet Jesus welcomed and taught everybody without partiality, without prejudice, Jewish, Samaritan, or Gentile like us. He went to the cross for everybody, all nations. And so this rejection of him, just because he's heading to the capital of uh, Israel, is, well, it's just unjust. I wonder what your natural reaction is when um, you're rejected unjustly. What do you do? Do you lash out? Do you retaliate? Do you go home and whinge to your husband or wife? Do you reach for the nuclear option? Verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I wonder, are James and John just being typical, trigger-happy, my-button-is-bigger alpha males? Well, do you know, actually, they're not. Not entirely. You see, back in 9 verse 29, on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured into his heavenly glory, they saw him talking there with the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, as if from another world, certainly from another time. And some who had rejected these prophets, Moses and Elijah, in their respective days, some who rejected them were consumed by fire. You see, the point is that Jesus rebukes his disciples not because fire is too harsh. In fact, Jesus is greater than that. (laughs) No, it's not that it's too harsh, it's that it's... Too soon. That's the point. Now is not the time for judgment. The cross teaches us that now is the time for an offer of peace and salvation. Oh, the time for judgment will come. Make no mistake. 
It's not just me saying that. Jesus himself warns later in Luke. I, I wouldn't dare to say it if Jesus hadn't said it, but he warns later in Luke in chapter 17, 29 to 30, that fire will rain down from heaven one day on those who reject him when he comes again in glory. But for now, he has come in humility to the cross to extend the offer of peace to all. And we, his followers, are called to do likewise, loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate us as we walk in his way. Now, I don't expect you to know this guy, but um, uh, he's very famous in London, Wayne Mark, Wayne Marks, a police officer who fought off terrorists in the London Bridge attack in 2017. He was armed with only a baton and fought off a machete-wielding attacker. Incredible. And he did it, in his own words, to save as many people as possible. He's a hero. He went all in to save others, and he sustained terrible wounds. But do you know what kept him going on the long road to recovery? He said it was the honor he received Messages of support from the public, a medal from the Queen. He said being honoured kept him striving to return to active duty as a police officer to keep saving people and serving them. What can I say that if you resolve to live all in for Christ, to be radically focused on saving as many as possible for the coming kingdom, then you must resolve to keep going without being honoured. No medals for bravery or sacrifice. No messages of support from the public. In fact, the more you try to save souls, I guarantee the more you will be rejected by all sorts of people. Unfairly. Because you're only trying to do them good. I wonder, do you see the kind of resolution that's needed? The resolution to risk popularity, perhaps even promotions for people's souls. Now, of course, many of you are so lovely, and I mean that, that lots of your colleagues will still like you, even if you are unashamedly public about your faith. But often it's just the possibility that there might be some who would disrespect, dishonor, or demote us. Just that possibility is enough to put us off sticking our necks out for Christ sometimes, isn't it? Well, thank God that the Son of Man succeeded where we failed. He resolutely went to the cross for us, even when it was an utterly thankless task for him, because he did it not for honor, but simply out of love. Well, I don't know about you, but boy, am I feeling right now that his love exposes my failure. But of course, his love also offers us forgiveness. And so should fill us with a renewed love for him that if only we could grasp it would empower us to follow. Well, last but not least, our final way to fail. Here it is. Prefer your earthly home to the heavenly one. To really get why this has anything to do with walking the way of the cross, you've got to understand this point that we've already made, right? That the cross achieves an exodus. That's what we heard in chapter 31 last week. He spoke to Moses and Elijah about his departure, or more literally, footnote says, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That 
Exodus is out of this earthly world into, verse 51, into heaven. It's an exodus he achieves not just for himself, but all who believe in him and are then united to him and so promised a heavenly home in him. That's how this has something to do with walking the way of the cross. The cross was something Jesus did that you might have a new home, even a heavenly one. Just as the Israelites were taken out of a land of slavery to a promised new world. And it looks like there are three people here who want in. I wonder, were you surprised by the way Jesus responds to them in 57 to 62? These guys are so keen to follow him. I mean, look at verse 57. Isn't this fellow model? I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, if three people like this came up to me in one day, a revival. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't respond like that, does he? Jesus probes how deep their commitment really is. He questions their resolve. And so we need to be ready to have our resolve tested too. And what better way to test the resolve of Western Christians than asking them to renounce their homes? Verse 58, Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. An Englishman's home is his castle, right? That's right, isn't it? And our TV habits do betray a mild obsession with housing, don't they? Location, 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 homes under the hammer, grand designs, property ladder, or if you're really scraping the barrel, place in the sun. Do you ever watch that? You shouldn't admit to it. What are you doing? But you know, obsessing over feathering our nests and Obsessing over putting more feng shui into our fox dens is not compatible with following Christ. Now again, let me be clear, Jesus is not against Christian property ownership in this world. If you look up, I've given you lots of different references, but we've got to sort of interpret things in context. But if you look up Luke 18, 29 to 30, Jesus makes it clear that the Christian community will own Many homes. And God knows we need roofs over our heads and he gives us every good gift to enjoy in this life. So it is perfectly godly to scour the sails for some new soft furnishings. Okay? So why does Jesus say verse 58? Well, I take it that he's testing us. Testing our resolve to follow him on the way of the cross. Testing whether we really believe that we have a better home in God's kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the heavenly kingdom that Christ has opened up to you through his his exodus at the cross is better than any grand design you can have for yourself in this world? After all, God is the architect of this stunning world. And he knows you inside out, and he loves you better than any architect could do. He understands you and your needs. So won't you trust his promise that he has a better home for you that he calls paradise? His words to the thief on the cross. 
And believing that, wouldn't it free you up to be all in following him? And to prioritize decisions about your Christian service over decisions about housing. But you know, of course, it's not fundamentally bricks and mortar that make a home, is it? Above all, it's people, family. And if property can hold us back in our resolve to follow Christ, people and our own people, especially perhaps our parents, can hold us back even more. So Jesus probes even deeper. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus quite shockingly said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Look, can you see once again, Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament are clear that we have obligations to care for elderly parents. And actually, Paul says anybody who doesn't provide for his family, especially in the name of his religion, is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus lambasted the Pharisees for saying Corban to the money they should have spent on caring for their elderly parents, but instead gave to the temple to look like good religious people. So don't mishear what he's saying. It's got to be read in context. But still, Jesus wants to warn us against the tragedy of letting our commitment to a family of death, stopping us from going all in, proclaiming the kingdom of life. Lots of tricky things to work out here, right? How do you keep honoring your parents if they're telling you not to keep preaching the gospel? How do you honor them if you're thinking of, I don't know, going into full-time ministry, perhaps, as some of you will be, and they're telling you not to? It's not easy to work this out, but the priority is clear. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Will you organize your career, your housing, even your family around Christ's priority for you? Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Well then, oh my goodness, who is fit? And of course, that's the point. None of us. We all need his mercy. Once again, there's a reference to Elijah here. Elijah, you see, called a follower. Confusingly, he called a follower called Elisha. I think he liked his name, wasn't he? So it's a terrible joke, isn't it? Never mind. And Elijah called Elisha when he was when Elisha was plowing his family's fields with the family oxen. But, you know, weirdly, Elijah allowed Elisha to say farewell to his parents. So, is Christ more demanding than Elijah? Well, not exactly. Because if you know how Elisha went about saying his goodbyes, you'd see that actually, well, let me explain. Elisha went back home, butchered his family's oxen that were pulling the plow, and then burnt the plow. 
It's like he was burning his bridges to his old way of life so that there was no way to turn back, even if he wanted to. Are you prepared to make discipleship decisions that shut off your exit routes? To be the kind of disciple that risks even alienating your family, perhaps. Not, not because you're being obnoxious, but simply because they hate your allegiance to Christ. Or do you want an insurance policy in case following Christ gets too hard? I had a landlord in London who'd worked in insurance in the 80s. He'd made a mint in those heady days of Thatcherism, but he gave it up to go into church ministry. He's a lovely man, quietly getting on with serving Christ's children in a little backwater parish. Not a well-known hero like C.T. Studd, but you know, he's a hero of mine. Because at one stage, he had owned a home in the Barbican in central London. A flat that would now have been worth a million and the rest, which is just proof how insane everyone in London is. Look at them, it's ugly, isn't it? <laughs> Unless you're into brutalist architecture. Uh, he wasn't reckless, he had a family, so he invested half of the proceeds in a cheaper flat in Bow, but the other half he gave to his church. Full on half to his church to fund the gospel proclamation. He shared with me once, though, how he wrestled with regrets. Isn't that striking? As he thought about how much more comfortable he might have been in this life, especially as he was coming up to retirement, oh, he had wobbles as he followed Christ. Uh, don't we all? And he certainly didn't think of himself as a Christian success story, despite what he did. Oh, if only I could grasp, like he has, what it means that the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men for me. Well, may God grant us all this Easter, failures as we are in many ways, to grasp his cross just a little bit more. And may we never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to us, and we to the world. Amen.